Chapter 1, verse 1 begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, though, wasn't always an apostle. He started out a fisherman. Baits and nets and boats and fish were Peter's business, not souls and doctrine and eternity. Peter started out a fisher of fish, but Jesus turned him into a fisher of men. An apostle even. The term apostle is derived from the root word to send. An apostle is an authorized messenger. A company spokesman, you might say. The president's press secretary. An official representative. But oh my, can you imagine anyone appointing Peter as their representative? You remember from last week, rather than representing Jesus, Peter spent most of his time trying to contradict him. Jesus was headed to the cross. Peter said, no way. Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet. Peter refused. Jesus set some kosher food, non-kosher food in front of him. Says, kill and eat. Peter says, not so, Lord. I mean, would you really want to make the guy who denied you three times and once in front of a little slave girl your chief spokesman? Your apostle? You know, nobody but the chief of grace, Jesus himself, could have seen the potential in this stumbling bumbling disciple named Peter. On his own, this man was as stable as sand. Yet Jesus changed the man and changed his name to Peter. He made him a rocky. Jesus even made him an apostle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims. Got a few pilgrim jokes for you this morning. Probably would be better if this was Thanksgiving, but you know, pilgrim jokes work any time of the year. 365 days a year. Pilgrim jokes are always funny. Question number one. What kind of music do pilgrims like? Plymouth Rock. They love Plymouth Rock. I told you, these pilgrim jokes are funny any time of the year. Hey, Why did the pilgrim's pants fall down? Oh, this is great. He wore his belt buckle on his hat. What do you expect? (laughs) Pilgrim jokes. They're funny all year long. Well, Peter isn't really talking about these kinds of pilgrims. The, The root word here for pilgrim means far off, far afield. A pilgrim is a stranger on a distant journey. He's far afield. He's passing through foreign surroundings, foreign culture. And the pilgrims that Peter has on his mind are you and me. Christians in this world are aliens. We're strangers in a strange land. This world is not our home. You know, if you flip ahead to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, you learn that Peter sends his greetings from Babylon. It's possible, but it's doubtful, that Peter was writing from the literal city of Babylon. In 60 AD, Babylon was nothing more than a pile of rubble. It's far more likely that Peter was referring to the spiritual Babylon, the city of Rome. At the time, Rome was the capital of paganism and Babylonian idolatry. Peter was a pilgrim, all right. He was a stranger. He was an alien to the culture around him. 
And he's writing here to pilgrims. The Roman emperor in Peter's day was a man named Caesar Nero. This was a wicked fellow. Egomaniac was not a strong enough word for Caesar Nero. Nero took pride in his buildings. He erected stadiums and palaces and shrines and temples. Nero was such a prolific builder that Rome ran out of room. He needed more space. Then on July the 19th, 64 AD, a fire started in the woodsheds near the Circus Maximus. It raged for 10 days and torched two-thirds of the downtown district. Later it was reported that Nero's servants were seen running from the sheds just before the blaze broke out. The fire engulfed the entire city. And everyone believed that Nero was the arsonist. That he had set fire to his own city so that he could rebuild it himself. You know the old saying, Nero fiddled while Rome burned? And when fingers started pointing his direction, Nero needed a scapegoat. And so guess who he blamed? He blamed Rome's destruction on the Christians. And there were a number of factors that made the Christians easy targets. For starters, from Rome's perspective, Christians Christians were just a nuisance to most Romans. They refused to be good citizens. They didn't toe the line. They never behaved themselves. You see, religion had always played a huge role in the Roman Empire. Not that everybody truly believed in this pantheon of mythological gods, but the customs around them were cultural and traditional, and they were held by most people. They sort of were the fabric that held the society together. On holidays, sacrifices were offered to these state-sponsored deities. At family reunions, the father would stand and he would thank the gods of Rome for bringing the cousins and kin all back together again. The Bricklayers Guild opened its monthly meeting with a prayer to the god of bricklaying and on it went. It was all just traditional, it was cultural. A modern equivalent would be like dressing up for Halloween or or maybe observing Santa Claus or wearing green on St. Patrick's Day. Let's say a Christian decides that that she no longer wants to do those things. She's a Christian now. She doesn't want to support witches or lie to her kids or act superstitious. And so she decides to have some convictions. She goes and tells her friends, we're not doing that anymore. I'm a Christian now. I don't don't want to dress up like a witch and brew a hot cauldron of curses. And yet, rather than her friends support her convictions, they start to scoff. What's wrong with you? you? You think you're better than everybody else? You know, we've always done it this way. Suddenly her parents tell her, tell her, well, it was good enough for you. Why are you going to deprive your kids? And all of a sudden, this woman who, who stood up for her Christian convictions, she gets labeled antisocial, unpatriotic maybe, perhaps just plain weird. Well, well this was a Christian living in Rome. It was this pluralistic culture in which everything and nothing were believed. And the Christians, they were determined to to believe. They were determined to make all of life about Jesus. 
They had exalted Jesus at every turn. Their life was about Jesus, and they wanted to stand up for Jesus. And, of course, this upset the Roman routine. It made them an easy target. Another thing that drew attention to the Christians is they, of all the different people, interjected morality into society. All of a sudden, these Christians were speaking out. And according to the Christians, eating too much and getting drunk and telling a convenient lie and having sex with your girlfriend were selfish and unloving and wrong. And Christians dared to speak about it. They brought God into the bedroom. I mean, consenting adults are accountable to God, according to the Christians. In fact, Christianity brought God into every room of the house. And this made the immoral Romans antsy. It pricked Rome's conscience. The final straw that, straw that broke the camel's back was the Christians' unwillingness to place a pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar. I mean, the least they could do is honor the Caesar. Had Rome not been a good mother, I mean, it paved the roads, it kept the peace, at least its citizens could pay homage to its ruler. And everyone did, except the Christians. In a world that acknowledged many gods, the Christians served no king but Jesus. And even under the threat of persecution and death, They refused to buckle. Jesus is Lord was their battle cry. The Romans hated this defiance. And so when Nero needed to deflect the public's anger elsewhere, the Christians became his convenient target. Nero launched a massive crusade to persecute the followers of Jesus. He would dip their bodies into wax. And then he would burn them at the stake to light his drunken orgies. Once at one of these parties, he stripped down naked and he rode his chariot through the palace garden shouting, Light of the world! Light of the world! Just trying to mock the Christians and their God, Jesus. Nero clothed Christians in animal skins and threw them to wild, hungry dogs. Under Nero's Rome, six million Christians were crucified or executed by gladiators, or torn apart by ferocious lions. It was a holocaust of Christians. Finally, in 65 AD, Nero arrested the two champions of Christianity, Peter and Paul. The apostle Paul was beheaded while Peter died on a cross. Tradition tells us that when the soldiers came to crucify Peter, he asked that his body be nailed upside down. He felt unworthy to be crucified like his Lord. Hey, don't tell me that Peter didn't know something about suffering. He knew a thing or two about pain. And he penned this letter as a prisoner in Rome on death row. Peter wrote with death looming on the horizon, and yet his eyes were fixed over the horizon, beyond this world, to the glories of his heavenly home. I've heard it said, if Paul is the apostle of faith and John is the apostle of love, then Peter is the apostle of hope. Peter became a rock when he looked past this world and anchored his hopes in the world to come. Peter was a pilgrim writing to fellow pilgrims about the trouble that lay ahead. And his readers had already tasted some bullying. We're told they were pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You know, in Acts, we learn that the church was born in a climate of hostility and persecution. From the outset, believers in Jerusalem were hassled and attacked by Jews. Many ended up dispersed and displaced into other quarters of the world. This is the dispersion that Peter mentions. You know, Acts chapter 2 tells us that the folks who actually heard Peter's sermon, his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, the very first converts to Christianity, they were from, quote, Pontius and Cappadocia in Asia, the cities of Galatia. Places mentioned right here. In the beginning, these new believers, they may have stayed in Jerusalem to sit under the apostles' teaching and to grow in their faith. But when the heat of Jewish persecution grew hot, they returned home. But Peter never lost touch with these first saints. And now he warns them about the trouble ahead. They had been refugees of Jewish prejudice, but now they're about to feel the hot wrath of Rome. You know, I hope you realize that this world is not our home. As a Christian, we're pilgrims. We're strangers in a strange land. This world is not our home. This is why stuff breaks and why plumbing leaks and why weddings don't go smoothly and why life is full of hassles and their accidents and their conflicts and their taxes and their tickets. I didn't get a ticket this morning, don't worry. God doesn't want you to settle in and get comfortable in this world. That's why he subjects this world to, you know, the fallen nature of man and things. That's why things go wrong in this world. He doesn't want this to become our home. He doesn't want us to get real comfortable in this world. You know, in fact, if you're a new Christian this morning and you were told something like, give your life to Jesus and he will eliminate all your problems, I want to apologize to you this morning. That's a lie. In fact, give your life to Jesus and it might just get harder. For now, you're swimming upstream. And you're moving against the current of this world. You're now standing up in a world that's lying down and that gets tough. You're making folks around you uncomfortable. You're no longer the devil's homeboy. You're a threat to him now. Christianity is true and it's worth it, but Jesus never said it would be easy. You see, we too are dispersed pilgrims. Our natural habitat is heaven. The Spirit of God lives in us. We have God's nature. This world should be an alien place. Now, now I don't want you to misunderstand. I know some of you need a better life right now. I know that. You don't have a job. You can't feed your family. Your kid's in rebellion. Your wife hates you. You need things to improve right now. I understand that. And you know, Jesus wants to help you make your life better. But, but this is what I'm saying. No matter how rosy life gets, you're still going to get frustrated. And you're still going to have a discontentment. You're never going to be completely happy and totally satisfied in this world. Never. This world is not our home. And God refuses to allow us to get too comfortable in it. I'll never forget when when Zach came home from Bible college. He had lived away from home for two years, been on his own now for two years. 
time enough to shake off all of the wonderful training that he had received from his parents. And so when he came home, we gave him a blanket and a pillow and the opportunity to sleep on the couch in the family room, no privacy whatsoever. Uh, But we gave him a nice little place where he could put his stuff behind the couch in the family room and he could live in the family room and have a nice little place. Here's the point. We didn't want to make things too comfortable for Zach, lest he decide to stay. Whether he realized it or not, he was just passing through. And we wanted to make sure that things were just uncomfortable enough to hasten him along his journey. This is why God will never allow us to get too at ease in this wicked world. This world is not our home. Charles Spurgeon recounted an incident that occurred during one of his sermons about heaven. He was preaching about heaven. He writes what happened. There was a sister sitting on my right hand, her eyes sparkling as I spoke. It seemed to stir my very soul as she looked at me with such an extraordinary gaze of joy. I was stirred up to say something more, something better about our happy home above. When I saw her, apparently still looking at me a minute or two later, I perceived the same fixed gaze and said, I think that sister is dead. And she was. She had gone home without a sigh or a groan or a moan. As she considered the fullness of the prospects, the delight seemed to swell like a mighty wave, and it washed her on to the heavenly shore. Who knows how soon a similar experience might be ours. This is how we're supposed to live on earth, with a longing and an anticipation and a preparation for heaven. This world is not our home. Hey, the key to living this life and going through this life's difficulties is to keep heaven in sight. Keep its beauty between the hairs of your trigger. Keep savoring its foretaste. Keep its glory in your heart and its wisdom on your mind and its truth on your lips. Live close to heaven's shore so that one day a wave of delight will just wash you on over. There was a woman who was on board a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when an angry storm tried to capsize the boat. The woman, though, exuded such an unusual calm and composure that after the storm, the captain came to her and said, Ma'am, what is the secret of your strength? And this is what she said. I've got two daughters. One lives in New York and one lives in heaven. I knew I'd see one of my girls in a few hours and it didn't really matter which one. Hey, we're all just passing through. When life here below gets hard, remind yourself that heaven is our ultimate destination. Well, Peter encourages these pilgrims. Though they may have given up locality and comfort in this life to follow Jesus, their position in Christ is solid. He refers to them as the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And notice here the mention of all three members of the Trinity. It's as if God has tag-teamed our salvation just to make it sure and certain. You, my friend, are called the elect 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You are the elect. Did you realize the Bible teaches that God knew me, He knew you before we were born. In fact, He knew us before we even existed. He chose me before He poured the footers of the universe. In contrast, so often I feel like an afterthought. That God was choosing teams. He had the last pick and He got stuck with me. Not so. I was in God's heart long before I was in Mom's arms. You know, some of you have never been picked for anything. On the playground, you were always the last kid chosen. You stayed home the night of the prom. At work, you've been passed over time and again for that promotion. You flunked your American Idol audition, and you were so sure you could sing. Here's the good news. Almighty God has picked you for His team. When you hear the word elect, think election. God has cast His vote for you. Did you hear that? God has voted for you. You know, sometimes we vote for candidates and afterwards we regret our choice. Promises get broken. Bad character, poor judgment come to the surface. Skeletons fall out of the closet. And we think, if we had only known. Here we're told God has perfect foreknowledge. And yet He still chose you. This means God has no regrets about you. He sticks by His choices. He picked you. He elected you. Even though He knew your character flaws. And He knew the skeletons in your closet. And He knew the broken promises you would make. And He knew the bad judgment you would show. The Father knew all this in advance. And yet He still voted for you. You know, believe it or not, there there are some people. I don't get it. But the idea of God's election has become a controversial subject. For they read the Bible and they refuse to take it for face value. You know, the Bible is full of verses that make our salvation dependent on us choosing God. It's all about our choice. This verse and others like it say God chooses. It's all His choice. And you see, here's the mistake that we make. Rather than just accepting that as is, we conclude that there's got to be some kind of contradiction. Oh, it doesn't make sense to say that I choose, but God has a choice. That's illogical. So we try, in our high and lofty intellect, try to bring those two points of view together. And so we end up watering down the verses we don't like. You see, here's the bigger issue. Who says God has to play by our rules in the first place? Who says God has to abide by our logic? Isaiah says His ways are not our ways. God is infinite. I am very finite. That means that there will always be some mystery in my understanding with God. The old adage is true. If God was small enough for my mind to grasp, He wouldn't be big enough for my heart to worship. Trust me, you'll have a tough time getting along with God if you insist on complete knowledge and no loose ends in your relationship with Him. If you want no loose ends, if you want everything figured out, you'll never start to believe and you'll never begin to obey. God wants you to learn some humility. And here's a good place to start. God has elected me. 
And when I trust in Him, I cast my vote for God every day. God's chosen me, but I've chosen God. God's told us to believe both. You see, I believe the doctrine of election, not as a cop-out, but as a great comfort. It's so encouraging to know that God picked me. You know, whenever Jesus spoke to lost people, to Nicodemus or to the woman at the well, He never talked of God's choice. Instead, He talked of their need to choose. He didn't give them the doctrine of election as a cop-out. He gives it to us who believe as a comfort so that we know that He has chosen us. I've heard that when we get to heaven and we walk through the gate, there on the top of the gate of heaven will be inscribed the words, Whosoever will may come. From our perspective, it's all about our choice. But then when we go through the gate and we look on the backside, there will be the inscription, chosen before the foundation of the world. When we get there, we'll realize that he's the one that chose us all along. Well, you have been elected by the Father, but there's additional work to do. You are also sanctified by the Spirit. This is another part of your salvation. The word sanctification means to set apart. You were elected by the Father, but then you were selected by the Spirit. You were the Father's choice, but then the Spirit had to go find you and pull you out of the crowd and draw you to the Father's heart. Older saints used to refer to the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. I like that. The hound of heaven. That scared you, didn't you, when I, when I gave that howl? Be careful. You never know what's coming. Be careful. You see, the Father chose us. But the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven. The Holy Spirit tracks us. God chooses, the Father chooses us. The Spirit tracks us. The Holy Spirit ran our rebellious heart up a tree. He cornered us. He convicted us. He convinced us. He converted us. This is wonderful how the, the Spirit, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, has tag-teamed your salvation. The Father chooses. The Spirit catches. And then the Son, He cleanses. Notice this salvation that He's working in us is ultimately for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Father foreknows The Spirit fetches, but the deal ain't done until the Son fixes. Jesus alone forgives and cleanses and restores and makes new. I I want you to catch this. This is really cool. The Holy Spirit caught us and brought us to God. But now the Spirit, the, the Son, Jesus, cleanses us. I said that because I lost my place. This is what I really want you to catch right here. The Old Testament priest applied the blood of the sacrifice with a hyssop branch. The hyssop was a leafy twig, and it had these these little uh, buds on the end of it that, that caused it to absorb the blood so that the priest could then take it and he could sprinkle it on sprinkle the blood on whatever it was that needed to be purified. And with a skillful priest, with a priest who had the right touch, that sprinkling could get very, very specific. 
You could apply the blood precisely where it was needed. You see, a good priest could get very exact. And this is what Jesus does. He is our sacrifice, yes. His blood cleanses us. But he is also the priest who applies that blood. And Jesus has the touch of a maestro. Often we think of of salvation as a sort of a blanket cleansing. This is the image we get at a water baptism. You know, we're immersed in the cleansing. We're immersed in the blood. But the work of Jesus gets much more exact. That hidden sin that you've hidden, that you've covered over, that, that nobody else knows about, nobody else sees, the sin of which you've never told another soul, did you know that Jesus can reach that sin by the sprinkling of His blood? He can get right down in the cracks and He can get to that sin. The wounds you suffered as a little girl that cut you deeply, the abuse your dad inflicted, with one flick of Jesus' hyssop, He can touch that wound with His healing He can bring deliverance to your life. The trauma you've buried deep down in your psyche and that now you're afraid to uncover because of the hurts it might unleash, that can get pinpointed by Jesus with the sprinkling of His blood. Jesus can take the blood and He can apply it right where it's needed. And this is why we need Jesus. Only Jesus can do this for us. Good works and religion and therapy and karma and yin-yang and balance and harmony and meditation. It's all, all this stuff just masks over our problems. Only Jesus has soul cleansing and healing that gets applied directly to our sins and specifically to our wounds and down to our deepest hurts. Oh, the wonders that He can work with the sprinkling of His blood. We need Jesus. Peter says to the pilgrims who are chosen by the Father and captured by the Spirit and cleansed now by the Son, he greets them, grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is the common New Testament greeting, grace and peace. And it's always in that order, mind you. Grace is first. No one gets good enough for God. And if you try to be, you'll never know His peace. Only when you trust in His grace. Only when you rest in a love you don't deserve and in favor you can never earn. Only when you know His grace will you you then experience His peace. And here, unlike the rest of the New Testament, Peter multiplies God's peace. You know, his readers are suffering. That's why he wants them to have peace in abundance. Verse 3 begins the body of the letter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again. And here Peter uses a phrase that Jesus coined. He says, Christians have been begotten again, or born again. Ever heard that phrase? Born again? You see, humans are threefold. We're made up of three parts. We're body... We're soul and we're spirit. God meant for us to run on all three cylinders. We're a three-cylinder engine. Our body functions, our hands, our arms, our legs. Our soul, 
which is our mind and our will and our emotions, it too is active. But spiritually, you're born into this world dead as a doorknob. The wages of sin is death. Spiritually, you're dead. That means that you're running on, if you don't know Jesus, you're running on two out of three cylinders. No wonder you're sputtering, man. No wonder you misfire. On the one hand, you eat and sleep and drink. On the other hand, you laugh and cry and think. But the deepest part of you is dead. The part that interacts with God lies dormant. No wonder people who've never been born again have some drivability problems and get bad gas mileage and give off some real foul emissions. When you come to Jesus, God's Spirit creates a spark in your spirit. He lights the furnace. I was up at Calvary 316 the other day, and we rented this new warehouse, and it's really cold in there. And I was climbed up on top of this ladder, and I'm balancing on top of the... Marvin brought a little short ladder. And I'm balancing on top of this ladder, and I got my match, and trying to light this pile of, thinking this thing's going to blow up and I'm going to go to heaven, which would probably not be bad. But I'm sitting up here and I'm, I'm trying to light this thing and all of a sudden you catch, it, catch a pile and you hear it. It just comes. All of a sudden the furnace just lights up. Warmth starts radiating in this cold room. And that's what happens when you're born again. All of a sudden the furnace just comes on. And this warmth and this life begins to grow. A connection with God gets formed. Something comes alive within us. Jesus says we're born again. It's the new birth. And life gets better, friend, when you start firing on all three cylinders. As a matter of fact, when you're born again, hopeless people gain new hope. Peter says we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Dante, in his Divine Comedy, he hangs an inscription over death's door. It reads, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. See, this is death's great tragedy. When you die, you forfeit all hope for change. Death is the great spoiler. It separates lovers and it creates orphans and it slams the door of opportunity shut and it causes potential to vanish. Death chokes out hope. But Jesus overcame death. Jesus lives forever. When Jesus exited the grave, he resurrected hope and eternal life for people scheduled for death. And if Jesus can overcome death, anything now becomes possible. There's an old saying I love, and it's so true. Born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically, but you're also going to die spiritually. But born twice, born again, and you'll die only once. You'll live forever with Jesus. In Christ, we have been begotten again unto a living hope. And when Peter mentions living hope, he means a growing hope. You see, a kid's mind is, is full of dreams and visions. You know, a little boy, he, he hopes one day to play ball in the big leagues or to be an astronaut and land on the moon. A little girl, she hopes to marry a movie star or sing in front of thousands of fans. And growing up in this world becomes the painful process of killing off our hopes one at a time. I mean, you hope for a sporty new 
convertible dies. And you settle for? You settle for a minivan. So that's life right there in a nutshell. Your hopes die off. And you settle for this. And you settle for that. I mean, all my life long I dreamed of being a professional athlete until one night at Calvary Chapel on the softball field right in back of the church. I remember it well. We're playing softball and it dawned on me, if I can't get a hit off Mike Protzman, I'm probably not going to be a brave. This world is causing dreams to fade. It causes hopes to die. Things we never did, places we never saw, the person we never became. Earth is full of dying hopes that can never be resuscitated. And this is what causes a midlife crisis. Hope and time start slipping through your fingers and you realize you can never get it back and you start to panic. I had a friend once who had a heart attack. He said it woke him up, caused him to realize life is short. And and if there was anything he wanted to do, he, he needed to do it now. And so guess what he did? He went out and he got a tattoo and he bought a Harley. And I'm thinking as he's telling me this story, how sad, man, you're sad. How shallow can you be? I mean, suddenly it dawns on you that all your hopes are dying hopes. And so you try to squeeze out of this life the very best it can offer. And all you come up with is an ink spot and a loud motorcycle. Wow. Pretty vain life. Hey, here's what Peter would tell us. Rather than go through a midlife crisis, get your eyes on eternal glory. Don't worry about what you might miss out on in this life. It doesn't matter anyway. Live for Jesus so that you won't miss out on what does matter, the life to come. Hey, hey, you need to know this. For a Christian, this present world, what you're going through right now, it's as worse as it's ever going to get. It's only going uphill from here, guys. It's only going to get better. Heaven is in our forecast. Yet if you don't know Jesus, the opposite is true. This world right now, I mean, what you're going through right it's as good as it's ever going to get for you, man. This is the best you can expect. Hell's going to be much worse. Here's our hope. When I reach my last day on earth, my best days will still be ahead of me. Christians have a living hope. And it is out of this world. Once there was a little boy and he was picking out his puppy. And he opted for the puppy that was always wagging its tail. There was one little puppy that was constantly had its tail wagging. That's the puppy he chose. That's when his daddy asked why. And the little boy grinned and he said, I wanted the one with the happy ending. And that's why I'm a Christian. I have picked the life with the happy ending. All our trials come with a living hope. Now understand, the persecution that many of these believers in Bithynia and Pontius and Cappadocia had experienced, this persecution was coming from their families. And in the ancient world, there was no such thing as government-sponsored welfare or unemployment or FDIC insurance. The only financial safety net came from a person's family. And this concerned many of the Christians. 
Disapproving parents had written them out of their will. They were fired from the job in the family business. They were kicked out of their family-owned home. They were facing retirement with no inheritance, no security. And so Peter assures them in verse 4 that they've been born again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. God's safety net is called heaven. I hope you realize the volatility of today's markets make it clear that nothing earthly is certain. Only God's treasures are priceless and permanent. Eternal blessings can't be lost or tainted or stolen. If you're a believer in Jesus, there is an inheritance in heaven under lock and key with your name on the account. And you, you yourself, my friend, are kept by the power of God, Peter says, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, when my kids were younger and we'd play together, they'd always hand over something and they'd say, Dad, can you hold this for me? Can you put this in your pocket? Sometimes it was a piece of candy or maybe it was a, some money they'd been given or their Bible even. But it was an item they didn't want to lose and so they entrusted it to me. Well, you, my friend, are the item that God doesn't want to lose. So much so that He keeps you and that He holds you. Believe in Jesus and God tucks you in His pocket. Again, th- this is why our best days are still ahead. The closer Peter gets to the end of the road, the brighter and the more hopeful Peter becomes. For he has a growing hope. Do you have a growing hope today? Let me close with another quote by Charles Spurgeon. He was a great preacher, but he was still a man, and he was often troubled by bouts of depression. He wrote this, Christian men are but men. They may have a bad liver or an attack of bile or some trial, and then they get depressed. But what then? Well, then you get joy and peace through believing. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful, I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. But I always get back again by this. I know I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in Him. Because He lives... I shall live also. And I spring to my legs and I fight with my depressions of spirit and downcast soul and I get the victory through it. So may you do and so you must. For there is no other way of escaping it. You get joy and peace through believing. And this is Peter's message to us. We also get plagued by bouts of depression. We also go through trials and testing and adversity. But we have been born again to a living hope that no matter how hard life gets, as a believer in Jesus, everything in your life is looking up. It's going to get better. Your best days are still ahead. And you escape the depression and you fight through the pain of the moment to the joy and peace of Jesus by believing By hoping. So this morning, let's reach up with the grasp of faith. And let's grab hold of our living hope. And let's trust in the risen Lord Jesus. 
who has risen from the dead and wants to bring us along with him.